Will you please stand with me and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, where we'll read verses 1 through 6 for our New Testament reading. After that, we'll read our sermon text, which is Joshua 22. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6 first. And before we read, let's ask for God's blessing on his word. Our Father in heaven, your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And we pray that it would pierce our hearts tonight with the truth and with the hope and the light of your grace through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Amen. Let's go to Joshua 22 now. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now, To the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers." So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him 
ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the great congregation of the Lord? that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the manner of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and Turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God 
and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder how many of you have heard of what are called the four attributes of the church. Um, Actually, I know that you have heard of them because you've heard the Nicene Creed, um, where we always say together near the end, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Those are the four attributes of the church. Some people will uh, label them unity holiness, catholicity, and, uh, and apostolicity. It's kind of a mouthful. So it's easier to say one holy Catholic, Catholic and apostolic church. So first, what does that mean? So unity means the church is one. There is one church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ does not have many bodies. He has one body. Christ does not have many brides. He has just one bride. And um, that's something that Christ can always see from his point of view and that we can always trust even when that unity is obscured from our point of view because of our sin and our weakness and the divisions that occur visibly in the church on earth. A second attribute is holiness. It means that the church is set apart for Christ. It's distinct from the world. It's been purified and it's being purified by the Holy Spirit. The third one is, oh, actually, it's the fourth one. I'm going to come back to number three. The fourth one is apostolicity. Um, Like when Ephesians 2.20 says, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone, right? Um, So the church finds its unity in something. It finds its unity in the word, which is the apostolic word, the inspired scriptures given to the church by Christ under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the apostles and their associates. That's our foundation. That's our authority. All right, so one holy apostolic. And then we go and confuse everybody by saying that the church is also Catholic. Wait a second, I thought we were a Protestant church. And that is true enough. We're not Roman Catholic. But Catholic, um, sometimes we say Catholic with a little c to distinguish it from Roman Catholic. Catholic with a little c means... The church is everywhere. It means the church is everywhere. That it extends throughout space and time wherever the true people of God are gathered together from every tribe and tongue and nation. So there's not one church in America and a different church in Europe and a different church in Africa. There's one church everywhere. That's the Catholicity of the church. Now that Catholicity of God's people Maybe wondering where I'm going with this. Well, it's definitely much more um, fully realized now under the New Testament than in the Old Testament, or the New Covenant than in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament times, um, God's God's grace was was concentrated on one little nation in one little corner of the world, right in Israel. But even then. Even then, there were glimpses of what we might call the Catholicity of Israel. 
which I hope will help us to think tonight about our place in the truly Catholic, little c, church, the church everywhere. Okay, so our three points tonight are going to be first, a Catholic covenant, verses 1 through 9. Second, a crisis of covenantal Catholicity, verses 10 to 20. And third, conserving covenantal Catholicity. Okay, so a Catholic covenant, a crisis of covenantal Catholicity. And number three, conserving covenantal Catholicity. All right, so first, what do, what do I mean by a Catholic covenant? Well, already many times um, we've talked about the arrangement that Moses came to and later Joshua reaffirmed where uh, these two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, were, were promised um, back under Moses' time that they would get to settle not in the heartland of Canaan uh, to the west in between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Instead, they were going to settle in the land on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Um, the... Uh, the opposite side from Jericho, the opposite side from Jerusalem, and so on. Um, They were going to settle there as long as they promised first to uh, cross over with the other tribes and to help uh, with the main war in the heartland of Canaan first. And only after the land of Canaan was subdued were they to go back and um, build their um, new life on the eastern bank. As it turns out, um, in this chapter, what, we're, what we see at the beginning is that those two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, those two and a half tribes have kept their word, verses three and four, uh, verse, verse three rather, and then verse four, the Lord has kept his word to the nation um, by giving them the rest of the land. And so finally, Joshua then is going to keep his word by sending these tribes home at last. These tribes who have been faithful to what they promised to do. What this does is it gives rise to a situation uh, where we can start to think of Israel as, in a sense, a a small-c Catholic community. Again, remembering what I said at the beginning. Remember that the the church Catholic means the church everywhere, in every place. So there's this geographical barrier now, the Jordan River, that's separating the covenant people in space. Two different sides of the Jordan River. However, Joshua exhorts those eastern tribes as though they are, because they are, an integral part of the one covenant people of God. They are not going to have a separate covenantal relationship with God over there. They're not going to have a separate Identity, they are going, they are going, they're going to be these two places, east and west, but just one Israel. Just one Israel. Now, that sort of thing doesn't come naturally. It doesn't happen by accident. Natural barriers of all kinds, including geographic barriers, can very easily become spiritual barriers if we do not consciously, proactively work against that tendency. That's just human nature. Any, any natural barrier that comes between people, we tend to magnify and start to sort ourselves 
according to birds of a feather flocking together, the gospel is calling us to reach across those boundaries and proactively work against that tendency to separate ourselves. Um, And perhaps this is why, in verse 5, Joshua reminds the eastern tribes before they go, he says, only be very careful. Be very careful, he says, to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So wherever you go in Israel, whichever side of the Jordan River you you are on, he's saying, you ought to encounter the same faith there. You ought to encounter people who are serving the same God the same way. People who are walking according to the same law, the same Torah. Um, not, Not just conforming outwardly to the same ethical standards of behavior, although that's part of it, but you're to, you ought to encounter people who are devoted to the same person. They are to cling to him, Joshua says. Cling to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And those words should sound familiar to you because they are recalling the great confession of faith uh, that Moses delivered to Israel back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today, Moses said, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Israel is one Israel because their God is one. The unity of God's people depends on the unity of God. We are one people of God because our God is one. There is only one true God, as we love for our children to say when we ask them their catechism. No, there is only one true God. What unites Israel across the geography of the land, the many natural barriers it contains, especially the Jordan River, is that shared confession of faith, that shared love for that one God. And so as each of their hearts, each individual in Israel, as each of their hearts becomes more and more united in a pure love for God, for the Lord, and then as each of their lives then becomes more and more united in a consistent obedience to God's ways, think of Psalm 86 where David prays, unite my heart. Unite my our hearts are so frequently divided. Our affections are divided. Our wills are divided between what God is calling us to and what we want to do. And David is praying, no, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. So understand that when our when your heart is divided, when your affections are divided, when your will is divided, that threatens your unity with other Christians. Because unity is not just unity for its own sake, where, well, we just get rid of anything that might distinguish us. We just get rid of anything that might make other people upset so we can have this uh, kind of artificial unity. We just kind of pretend to... No. Christian unity and Israel's unity was unity in something. It was unity in something that transcends all of us, transcends any of us. It's unity 
in our common devotion to God. A common devotion to Israel's Lord. God is like this great north star where all of our courses kind of converge. We're all going towards that one place. And that's what gives us our unity. All of our dreams and goals and hopes should be converging on that single point. And so if we are walking faithfully, each of us towards him, clinging to him, serving him with all of our heart and soul, devoted to him, that's what gives Israel its unity. That's what gives the church its unity. It's unity in the Lord. And we can easily lament pretty evident disunity in the church around the world. So we sing in the hymn, the, the churches by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet, it goes on, the church on earth hath union, how? In God the three in one. With God the three in one. It says, elect from every nation, yet one, or all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, the Lord's Supper is what it's talking about. And to one hope she presses with every grace endued. And so rather than simply lamenting the things in the church's life that do indeed obscure its true Catholicity, we should think uh, more, more energetically than that about what we can be doing to exhibit it to encourage it, to foster it. And what is that according to Joshua? Well, it's not getting rid of our distinctions. It's not getting rid of the offensive parts of the Bible so that we can kind of come together with with people who don't like what God says. No. This is the message for Israel, and this is a message for our church, for Resurrection OPC tonight. What Joshua says here is, love the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways. Keep his commandments. Cling to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. As the church around the world in every place does that, that is when you can see our true Catholicity. That wherever you go, it's the same church. I was at the Banner of Truth Ministers conference last week. It was wonderful. The conference topic was communion with God. But in one of the talks, one of the speakers was talking about 1 John chapter 1, where it says we have fellowship with God when we walk in the light, but not only with God. It says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that's when we have fellowship with one another, John says. And he talked about how wherever you go around the world, regardless of your national or ethnic background or the barriers of language or history, when you encounter the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ in any nation. What do you find there? You find people that you love and people who love you and you have a supernatural connection with these people. Why? Because you all share that one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. So we read earlier from Ephesians 4. All right. Immediately after this great vision is set before 
the eastern tribes. It's no time at all before there intrudes into this history this great crisis that threatens to tear apart this covenant Catholicity that Joshua's just laid out in verses 1 through 9. Eastern, uh, we call them Transjordan tribes across the Jordan, uh, do something kind of unexpected, and it turns out to be quite alarming, in fact, to the rest of Israel. And they build this huge altar on the western bank of the Jordan River. Uh, it's still on the western side, but it's, it's closer to their eastern territory than Shiloh is, Shiloh being the new semi-permanent location of the tabernacle. We talked about last time. So what's the problem here with this altar, the perceived problem? Okay, last time we talked about Deuteronomy 12, where Moses describes the place that the Lord your God will choose. Singular. One place that the Lord your God is going to choose to make his name dwell there. And of course, one day that place, that one place is going to be Jerusalem. It's where the temple will be built. But for now, under Joshua and the judges, up until the time of David, that place the Lord God chose for his name to dwell was called Shiloh. That's where it is now. That's where it was in chapter 18. Um, And wherever the tabernacle is, well, that's where the altar is. The altar that God instructed Moses to build where Israel was to bring their sacrifices. That same chapter, Deuteronomy 12, goes on to say later, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see. But at the place that the Lord your at that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. In other words, Israel was not to have many altars; they were to have just one altar, the altar at the tabernacle. That was it. There was to be no other place of worship in the land for offering sacrifices. And this is exactly what got Israel in trouble later under the monarchy, um, even under many of the good kings who uh, got rid of the idols, they got rid of Israel's false gods, it often says, when it summarizes their reigns, but, he was good, but the high places were not removed. So Israel was worshiping the true God, maybe, but, but in the wrong way. They had these many altars, other than the one that he had appointed. This is a big problem for Israel and Judah later in their history. Now, when these eastern tribes build this huge altar on the western bank of the Jordan River, Uh, alarm bells start to go off in a big way for the rest of the nation. What are they doing? They are building their own altar. They can't do that. That one altar at Shiloh is supposed to unite us all. That's the one the Lord told us to worship at. And so to all appearances, this new altar uh, seems to threaten that Catholicity of the covenant that Joshua had laid out. The Western tribes are rightly very concerned about this. And and they actually begin to assemble with the intention to go to war against the eastern tribes if they don't get a satisfactory explanation for this. You might think, oh, wow, they're really overreacting. No, this is not an overreaction. This is the right response for the western tribes. They're showing that, again, unity and Catholicity are not just words. They're not things that we pretend They're not just sentimental ideals. If they're to have any real meaning at all, they have to have content. 
They have to have boundaries. They have to have accountability. The church only has unity and Catholicity because of its apostolicity, because it's built on a foundation, the foundation of the inspired and authoritative word of Christ. So any kind of unity that that ignores God's word, that moves off of that apostolic foundation or trades it for something else or gets rid of it entirely, that kind of unity, that kind of Catholicity is really an illusion. It's not really unity. It's not really Catholicity. It's fake, and it's very bad for the church. Um, It's really interesting. The person who is chosen to lead this delegation from west to east, his name's Phineas, Phineas the priest. Phineas is important because um, back in Numbers 25, when Israel started taking Moabite women for themselves and as a result started participating in Moabite Baal worship in the wilderness just before coming into the promised land, it was an existential crisis for Israel. There was a, God sent a plague against them because of this great uh, treachery, this apostasy against the Lord. After everything they had been through, here they were worshiping idols again and, and uh, marrying foreign women. That plague only stopped when this Phineas, this Phineas is the one who picked up a spear and actually executed one of those Israelite men and his Moabite consort, and uh, the plague ceased. Read about that again in Numbers 25. And as a consequence, the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. That is the Phineas who goes out to confront the eastern tribes. It's a very serious moment. If things are as they seem to Phineas, then there's about to be a very bloody conflict, a civil war that really would have turned out to be an existential threat yet again, um, really to the entire nation. Imagine Israel going to war with one another when they've just barely finished gaining their foothold in the land of Canaan. But what's really neat to see here in the way that Phineas conducts himself, you might think, oh, Phineas is just kind of going to pick a fight or something. He's just some kind of a hawk, like you know the hawks and doves in Congress. He's, he's a hawk. He's just spoiling for a war. I don't know, it's not like Phineas desires this conflict. He does not. What Phineas is doing is he's seeking to be faithful. But he's also exemplary in this, that he very wisely seeks a peaceful resolution first. This is actually a, a pretty good model for us, uh, you know, bringing it into our own context in various ways. It's a pretty good model for thinking about how to deal with disagreements and conflicts um, in the church. Not that we should be threatening to go to war with one another, but I think you can see my point that in the way that Phineas very clearly explains what he perceives to be the problem, he's very forthright about it. Look, guys, I'm seeing this problem in a way that you're um, uh, practicing your religion. This does not seem to be what God has told us to do, and it's really serious. Um, And he exhorts them to repent and to turn back to God if things are as they seem. But what's, what's neat about this is the way he's also implicitly inviting them to explain themselves and, may, and maybe to 
demonstrate their innocence, to show him if there is some other explanation he genuinely wants to know, as is exemplified in his ultimate response. So Phineas is is not this self-righteous character on some kind of crusade uh, just to go and find fault, and he just wants to go punish somebody because that's what will make him happy. Like He just is on some kind of power trip. There's people like that in the church. Sometimes we've got to guard against that self-righteousness and desire to just go get somebody. That's wrong. It's not what Phineas is doing. It's not Christ-like. What Phineas wants is he genuinely wants to pursue holiness. He wants to pursue the purity of the covenant people. He genuinely wants peace. But not just peace at any cost. He wants the true peace that comes through true purity and true unity in God's law. And one of the most striking things, I think, in this section is verse 19, where he says, but, but now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Imagine, you understand what he's offering here. Imagine the sacrifice that the Western tribes would have been making if that had actually happened. They've just gone to all this trouble. Those last uh, long chapters we've been going through the last couple of weeks, they've just gone to all this trouble to divide up so carefully all of that Western territory so that each tribe gets a fair share. And now they're offering, look, if, it, if that's what it takes, we would rather give up some of our land and let you have it over here on the West. We would prefer that rather than having you cut yourselves off from the covenant through your false worship. How often can we say that about our relationships with people that we disagree with? we're, We're very good at getting angry. We're very good at pointing out other people's faults and the errors and the failings that we perceive in other parts of the church. But what we've got to ask is how many of us would be willing to make a real personal sacrifice, to, to give up something truly precious to ourselves if that's what it took for those wrongs to be righted? You know, many of our fathers and mothers in the faith were willing to do exactly that. That's, that's the story, for example, of the Reformation martyrs. It's the story of the Puritans who got ejected from their pulpits. Real personal sacrifice, serious personal sacrifices made because they were committed not to the fake, superficial Catholicity, quote-unquote, represented by the Roman Church and its corrupt doctrine and worship. No, they were committed to the true Catholicity that can only exist when it's centered on the truth, when it's centered on the Word of God. It's interesting, the early Puritan William Perkins in 1598 wrote a book called A Reformed Catholic. Reformed Catholic, and the book makes the point that it was really the Reformation churches who were carrying on the true Catholicity of the church. That's an identity I want to see us cultivate here at Resurrection in our denomination that we're not kind of parochially Reformed, kind of getting in our little corner of Christendom and cutting ourselves off from the global church to practice this little peculiar our own version of Christianity, often isolation where we can do our own thing and, and look down on everybody else. That's, that's a wicked way to think about our faith. It's, it's contrary to everything we believe about the church. 
Now, what we want to do is we want to think of ourselves as Reformed Catholics, right? Not Roman Catholics, but Reformed Catholics with a little c, part of the one church of Christ everywhere, and pursuing that unity and Catholicity in the only way that real unity, real Catholicity can actually be found and preserved, and that is by ever reforming according to the word of God and growing in conformity to Christ and willing, as part of that, to make deep personal sacrifices if that's what it takes in order to see that reformation spread. Well, finally, I'm really glad this story has a happy ending. Um, And so we come now to that happy ending of what was almost a very tragic history. This is verses 21 to 34, which we're calling conserving covenantal Catholicity. So as it turns out, um, Eastern tribes had not at all built this altar to be a functioning altar, an actual place of sacrifice. They'd actually built it purely and solely as a symbol. One writer calls it a, a replica, you could say, of the one altar back at Shiloh. And so the problem by the end of the chapter kind of evaporates because um, rather than threatening that Catholicity of Israel, it turns out that the whole point of this altar replica was to protect that Catholicity. They were, they were concerned that one day uh, the Western tribes uh, might say, hey, what are, what are you doing coming over and, and worshiping with us? You guys live on the other side of the Jordan. You can't come over here. You have no portion in the Lord. And the Eastern tribes wanted to be able to appeal to this monument, sort, of, sort of monument they had built and say, look, no, our ancestors built this to demonstrate that we are part of Israel too, that we serve the same God at the same altar, the one at Shiloh, not this one, the one it portrays. So this replica altar was to demonstrate that no matter which side of the Jordan you're on, you're still in Israel, the one Israel everywhere. And... The, the neat thing is that Eastern tribes want to pass that vision on to future generations. They're thinking multi-generational. They're, they're saying, right now, we all know this, you guys on the West and we on the East. We get it. We've lived it, this conquest we've just been through together. But what about our kids and their kids? What Are, are, are they going to learn that they're part of something bigger than themselves? bigger than one side of the Jordan or the other. And that's something for us to think about, too. What about our kids? Are they learning that they are part of something bigger than themselves, bigger than Resurrection OPC, bigger than the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, bigger than American evangelical Christianity, bigger than Reformed Christianity, Are we teaching them to see themselves as part of that one holy Catholic and apostolic church of the Lord Jesus Christ? The church everywhere, in all times, united in him. If the covenant had this little mini Catholic aspect in the time of Joshua, how much more today as we Gentiles have been gathered in through the power of the Holy Spirit to believe the one gospel of the forgiveness of our sins too. Through the death and resurrection of our Lord too, Jesus Christ, who's binding all the church in one, as the hymn says, through his 
obedience and his blood and his new life and his heavenly reign. And the doors have been thrown wide open to every tribe and tongue and nation. They're all being gathered in, and we're being gathered in from those nations. We've got to remember, we're not on the, at the center with everybody being gathered into us. We're on the outskirts of those concentric circles of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. We're the uttermost parts of the earth. We're being gathered in as part of that one church everywhere. We need to catch that vision, not to be have these blinders on where we can only see what's right in front of us. We want our kids to catch that vision that we're part of something so much bigger than ourselves. Pursue that identity of being Reformed Catholics, seeking our unity with the global church, but a unity in the truth, a unity in in the Word, built on that apostolic foundation with Christ as the cornerstone. And so like these people of Gad and Reuben and Manasseh, let's pass that vision on to our children so that they too might join the true church of every time and place in doing what? In loving the Lord our God and walking in all his ways keeping his commandments and clinging to him and serving him with all their heart and with all their soul. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are gathering all of the church in one through the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of your one Holy Spirit. Thank you for that one hope. You've given to us one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Lord, we confess that so often in our selfishness and our ignorance and our uh, waywardness and our, our sin, we um, work at cross-purposes. That, that global vision for that one church that Christ is gathering for himself to purify himself a people for his own possession, Lord, we ask that you would counter that waywardness in our hearts and, Lord, make us part of this uh, comprehensive global vision for what Christ is doing in the world. Lord, we pray you would stir up our hearts to desire to see the spread and prosperity of the global church, uh, spiritual prosperity, Lord, as the gospel spreads and thrives among all of the nations. And Lord, we pray in closing tonight as we pray as we began this day that you would bring that day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of your glory as the waters cover the sea. Lord, make us part of that aspect of your will being done on earth through our prayers, through giving of ourselves and our time and our treasure, through our support for global missions, through our support for the global church, the persecuted church, the church that is an extension of of us because we're all united to the one Christ who binds us all together. So, um, Lord, help us to catch that vision and to pass it on to our children so they too would uh, be part of this and love to be part of it. Um, not because we're looking for unity and peace for their own sake, but because we love you and we're walking in your ways and keeping your commandments and clinging to you and serving you with all of our heart and soul because of all that you've done for us in Christ and his life and death and resurrection. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.